Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 146, The Crimean War, Part 6. Last time, we covered the opening battles of the Crimean War, and in particular, the Battle of Alma. From here, we're going to begin to talk about the problems surrounding the men and the women serving in the war, along with the battles of Balaclava and Inkerman. Following the Battle of Alma, there was general disagreement among the Allies on whether to pursue the retreating Russians or hold their positions and recuperate. Within the British ranks, Raglan did not want to send his light cavalry out, as he feared, and rightfully so, that the Russians still had a strong contingent of heavy cavalry at their disposal and a pursuit might be foolhardy. While the Russians had 1,000 highly trained cavalrymen at their disposal, the Russians had 3,000, many of whom were the world-renowned Cossack horsemen. Immediately after the Battle of Alma, many thought that the Russian retreat was a mess, but in reality, it wasn't. While Menshikov may have failed as a commander in the field, he led a very orderly and rapid withdrawal, even taking a number of hills to make sure that his troops would be protected in case the Allies decided to attack. Unfortunately, the men were still within artillery range of the Allies, who hit them ferociously. As Captain Chadasiewicz would say, quote, We passed numbers of unfortunate men who cried out to us for help. We could not give them. Some asked for water to quench their intolerable thirst, while others begged hard to be put out of their agony by a speedy death. These sights and sounds had a very visible effect on the morale of the men, as they saw how little care was taken of them when they most required it. They exclaimed amongst themselves while passing through these horrors, Happy is he who a merciful providence permits to die on the field of battle. It was at this point that the Allies, and had they attacked, in force, they would have broken the Russian lines and may have won the war without taking Sevastopol. But the French, under the terminally ill Saint-Arnaud, refused to continue, claiming extreme fatigue. Vice Admiral Vladimir Kornilov of the Russians was aghast at what he found following the battle. Quote, there were neither hospitals nor field dressing stations, nor even stretcher bearers, and this explains the large numbers of wounded left on the field of battle. The exhaustion after the Battle of Alma was pretty substantial, as you might imagine, by all. So those, especially within the British who wanted to continue the attack, may have been foolhardy. Now, they may have won the war there, but uh, chances are the men were all too tired to continue. Now, the Russians were very lucky to have escaped that day. For the next few days, though, the French continued in their refusal to pursue, frustrating Raglan and his officers. According to Rear Admiral Lyons, the British commander felt utterly stymied by his French allies. As he put it, quote, With the troops perfectly fresh and fit to march on, and the weather very fine, I sent to Marshal Saint-Arnaud to propose that we should march on Sevastopol and assault the place at once, to take our ground above the town. I forget what the expression was. And the answer to me was that the French troops were fatigued and cannot move on any further. That cannot be the real reason, as the march was not long enough to fatigue the troops. But however as they cannot move, of course, I cannot either. 
In London, the populace was ecstatic about the victory at Alma, even though they had not completed the route. But on October 12, 1854, this was all to change. Reports began to come in about the horrible conditions the British wounded were suffering through. This was to be the first time that a war was realistically reported to the people back home, and the shock was palatable. Thomas Cherney, the correspondent for the Times, wrote, quote, Not only are there not enough sufficient surgeons, that it might be urged was unavoidable. Not only are there no dressers and nurses, that might be a defective system for which no one is to blame. But what will be said when it is known there is not even linen to make bandages for the wounded? The greatest commiseration prevails for the unhappy inmate of Scutari, and every family is giving sheets and old garments to supply their want. But why could not this clearly foreseen event have been supplied? He further went out to write, the worn-out pensioners who were bought out as an ambulance corps are totally useless. And not only are surgeons not to be had, but there are no dressers or nurses to carry out the surgeon's directions and to attend on the sick during intervals between visits. Here, the French are greatly our superiors. Their medical arrangements are extremely good. Their surgeons are numerous, and they have also the help of the Sisters of Charity, who have accompanied, accompanied the expedition in incredible numbers. These devoted women are excellent nurses. Here we are perfectly set up for the introduction of one Florence Nightingale, the daughter of a wealthy Hampshire family. The Secretary of War, Sidney Herbert, a friend of hers, knew that Florence was the person he needed, as he wrote to her, quote, There is but one person in England that I know of, would be capable of organizing and superintending such a scheme, and I have been several times on the point of asking you, hypothetically, if, supposing the attempt were made, you would undertake to direct it. The difficulty of finding women equal to a task, after all full of horror, and requiring, besides knowledge and goodwill, great energy and great courage, will be great. The task of ruling them and introducing a system among them is great and not the least will be the difficulty of making the whole work smoothly and the medical and military authorities out there. Now, of course, many of you may have heard about how amazing this Florence Nightingale was in her band of virtuous women who came to save the day for the poor downtrodden British soldier. But that would be a story that was a bit far from the truth. As Trevor Royal puts it in his book on the war, quote, her oft-told tale has a curiously British ring of an enterprise begun badly and ending tolerably, of initial bumbling, ineptitude, and, above all, disavowal giving way eventually to something approaching hope. In that respect, her experience has become an exemplar of all that was inefficient and amateurish about the war against Russia, and there is good reason for that being so. The correlation of Cherney's dispatches and Florence Nightingale's offer of help was certainly a turning point, which led not to just improvements at Scutari, but also to later investigations into the Army's handling of its casualties. As Clarentid admitted, the move owed everything to publicity and the growing power of the press. So Nightingale wasn't just coming in there and just fixing everything right away. It took quite a bit of time, and there was still an enormous amount of suffering going on for the British. 
But since this is a podcast about Russian and not British history, I'm going to switch sides here. But wanted the Nightingale story and the journalist's power for change to be told, because frankly, neither was happening on the Russian side. There was no freedom of press in Russia, and the people were not aware of the grave conditions of the injured soldiers lying on dirty mattresses, dying of disease and lack of treatment. The people in charge seemingly cared little about their men. But there was one man who would help the Russian soldier. Nicholas Pirogov had to go through tons of red tape to even get to Sevastopol to help. And he was a surgeon, by the way. And he didn't arrive until late November of 1854. But once he got started, things improved dramatically. He pulled all the strings he could, and with the help of the Grand Duchess Elena Pavlovna and the Orthodox Sisters of Charity, the soldiers finally got decent treatment but not from their own government. Now, as for the Turks, we should pity them, as their government didn't seem to care about their state at all. As British Captain Adolphus Slade put it, quote, devoid of resources, with no public to stimulate their rulers, the Turkish sick, all more or less influenced by the dogma of fate, in general, died where they had been sickened. Much of this must be put at the feet of their religion, as they were told that they would go to paradise if they fought and died for Islam. They were viewed by their leadership, as Royals puts it, quote, They were just part of the human detrius of war, expendable commodities who had made the transition to paradise by fighting their religion's cause. But now it's time to get back to the war itself. By October 15th of 1854, it was becoming very apparent that the war was not going to end by Christmas. As Stratford told Clarendon, The difficulties of getting the heavy guns into position and completing the trenches have been found, I believe, to be greater than we originally expected. The Russian side was no better. Morale was poor after the Battle of Alma, and the leadership of Menshikov was being called into question. But two men were to come to the rescue of the Russian army at Sevastopol. Vice Admiral Vladimir Kornilov and Lieutenant Colonel Franz Eduard Ivanovich Todleben. Both these men were critical to the defense of the city. Kornilov because of his inspirational speeches and personality, and Todleben because of his engineering prowess. Sevastopol was unfortified when they arrived, which made the troops stationed there mightily depressed. But within months, the place looked almost impenetrable. In the harbor, Menshikov made a decision to scuttle the fleet, making the waters surrounding the city impossible to attack from the sea. So it basically sunk the ships where they stood so that they would clog up the harbor. They used the guns from the sunken ships to man the walls. Also, all the sailors no longer in the navy were now available to help fight the siege. This last bit of news, that they were not going to be assaulted directly, but were going to be put under a siege. This actually delighted the men and the leaders. Became, they just became more confident by the day. The Allies were stunned to see the new fortifications and realized that it was highly likely that the war would be a long one. On October 7th, a war council was held, held by the Allies, and it was decided they would commence bombardment 10 days later. On that fateful day, the French were to start first at 6.30 a.m., but they didn't, for some reason, and no one knows why. 
The Russians on their side, they decided to start first, and about two hours later they got lucky and hit a French magazine, causing a massive explosion. This rattled the French artillerymen, and they were nowhere to be found that day. The British pounded away, but they were completely ineffective. Neither land nor sea artillery made a dent in the defenses. Day one to Russia. Right about the same time as the bombardment of Sevastopol, we have what is known as the Cavalrymen's Battle, the Battle of Balaclava. This particular full-scale skirmish is famous to this day because of one tragic event, the Charge of the Light Brigade. Balaclava is situated on the coast of the Black Sea to the southeast of Sevastopol. It was considered to be an important point that, if the Allies could capture, would make the siege of their main objective much easier. All three of the Allied forces were present here, but this was predominantly a British operation led by Lord Raglan. There were French troops, but the majority of them were Kamiish, a port to the west of Sevastopol. The noose was tightening on the Russians, but any thought of a quick end to hostilities would be put to a halt here at Balaclava. The thought was that a, an assault from the north on Sevastopol would be suicide, as the Russians had heavily fortified there. Raglan, Count Robert, who replaced the deceased Saint Arnaud, and the chief military engineer for the British Field Marshal John Fox Burgoyne were all in favor of using a southern assault, as Burgoyne saw that the Russians had not completed their fortifications on the southern flank. Now, if you're wondering, is this Burgoyne any relation to General Burgoyne of the American Revolution fame? And if you guessed yes, you would be right. He was the illegitimate son of General John Burgoyne and the opera singer Susan Caulfield. He was a veteran of the French Revolutionary War, the Peninsular War, and the War of 1812. His position in Crimea was as an official advisor to Lord Raglan. He understood that if the Allies were to take their target from the south, they would be there a while. Burgoyne's advice was sage, but it meant that the war would drag on for a while. The British created a base of operations in Balaclava and intended on using it to reinforce their troops as they moved towards Sevastopol. This was to be a bit of a mistake as the port there was hard to maneuver in and smaller than what they really needed. The Russians for their part were in a defensive mode but Menshikov was ordered to prepare to attack the British instead of just using a static defensive posture. Again, I'm not going to go into the battle you know, totally by itself, except for one exception, and if you've guessed what that will be, you would likely select the Charge of the Light Brigade. As an added attraction, I'll be putting out a Slapshot edition of the podcast shortly, the first one in a few years. On that one, I will be reading two of Lord Alfred Tennyson's poems, the Charge of the Light Brigade, and the Charge of the Heavy Brigade, as well as the far lesser known The Last of the Light Brigade by Rudyard Kipling. For the most part, the Allies vastly underestimated the strength of the Russians in Balaclava. They believed that it would be another Alma, and it would have had they planned better, and not wasted men in unnecessary charges. Field Marshal Menshikov was still in charge, and in an open battlefield, he was the inferior to pretty much anyone on the British or French side. Balaclava was a back-and-forth affair, with the Russians starting things off with a heavy artillery barrage against the hapless Turks. 
Then they unleashed their cavalry, which made headway until they came upon the Scottish 93rd Highland Regiment in what became to be known as the Thin Red Line. The Russians were forced to retreat and take up defensive positions yet again. But they had captured some cannons from the British, so this was very important. And it is here that the ill-fated charge of the Light Brigade occurred. While this is the most famous of the mistakes made during the Battle of Balaclava, it was not the only one. The Russians in one area, led by Major General Rizhov, waited too long to spread out, allowing the British 5th Dragoon Guards, a heavy horse brigade, to easily smash through their enemies, as described by Troop Major Sergeant Henry Franks, quote, Some of the Russians seemed to be rather astonished at the way our men used their swords. It was rather hot work for a few minutes. There was no time to look about you. We soon became a struggling mass of half-frenzied and desperate men, doing a level best to kill each other. Both men and horses on our side were heavier than the enemy, and we were able to cut our way through them. In fact, a good many of them soon began to give us room for our arms. And to quote Mr. Russell's words, the heavy brigade went through the Russians like a sheet of pasteboard. The Russians retreated back to their artillery lines by 9.30 a.m., with Raglan properly viewing the early action as a draw. He now needed something to take the day. Balaclava was in danger, with the Russian artillery in position on the high ground. The British and French needed to clear the hills to protect their harbor port. Raglan and the new French commander, Count Robert, saw that they were letting an opportunity to smash the Russians get away from them. Then someone from the British side shouted that the Russians were moving captured guns to a new position. Now remember that, it's the captured guns that they were talking about. Then the fateful order came down, quote, Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance rapidly to the front, follow the enemy, and try to prevent the enemy carrying away the guns. Troop horse artillery may accompany. French cavalry is on your left, immediately. That was the order. Now, the order was then handed to ADC Captain Nolan. This, according to Royal, was that they, quote, summoned the worst possible officer to deliver it to Lucan. Raglan's last words before the ADC left camp was, quote, tell Lord Lucan the cavalry is to attack immediately. This order, misinterpreted, was to lead to the death of 110 men with 161 wounded out of 670. The charge was made by the Light Brigade of the British Cavalry, which consisted of the 4th and 13th Light Dragoons, 17th Lancers, and the 8th and 11th Hussars, under the command of Major General James Brundell, 7th Earl of Cardigan. Also present that day was the Heavy Brigade, commanded by Major General James York Scarlet, who was a past commanding officer of the 5th Dragoon Guards. The Heavy Brigade was made up of the 4th Royal Irish Dragoon Guards, the 5th Dragoon Guards, the 6th Inniskilling Dragoons, and the Scots Greys. The two brigades were the only British cavalry force at the battle. When Nolan came to give Lucan the orders, the Lieutenant General asked him, Attack, sir? Attack what? What guns, sir? Nolan replied, There, my lord, is your enemy pointing with a wide swath, not at the hidden guns, the ones that were being moved, that the Russians were moving, which was the intended target of Raglan, but the deeply entrenched guns the Russians had, protected by infantry. 
Cardigan was then given the orders to attack the wrong target by Lucan. They both knew that it was a death trap, but in war, sacrifice of the few was necessary to save the many. Nolan, for his part, was waving his sword and yelling at the Russians when he was hit by shrapnel from a Russian shell. He was the first of the casualties over the next 25 minutes, but certainly not the last. Much to their credit, the Light Brigade made it through the blistering fire and managed to kill a number of artillerymen, but they were trapped and were forced to retreat through the same lines they came in, thereby increasing the carnage. The reporter, William Howard Russell, saw what had occurred and reported on it in the London Times. The loss of the Light Brigade, and by the way, almost 400 horses were killed or captured, was just too much to bear for Raglan, and they pulled out. The Russians viewed the Battle of Balaclava as a victory, but in reality, it was really a stalemate. In the aftermath, Lucan was sacked because of his misinterpreting the orders. Now next up is the Battle of Inkerman. This one is known as an infantryman's battle. On October 26th, the Russians attacked the British but were repelled by Captain Goodlake and his men. The skirmish would be known as Little Inkerman. The Battle of Inkerman, had it been successful for the Russians, would have given them the mountain known to, as the Cossack Mountain to the Russians and Mount Inkerman to the Allies. With that, they would have controlled the area and might have been in such a strong position that the Allies might have lost the war. Menshikov had reinforcements sent to him, so by this point he had 107,000 men at his disposal, many of whom were really fresh troops. The Allies had 70,000, most of whom were shell-shocked or ill. Tsar Nicholas and the War Ministry were itching for a fight and wanted the siege of Sevastopol to be broken. To make sure that Menshikov would attack the Allied lines and not sit back in a dis static defense, the Tsar sent two of his younger sons to monitor the situation. The numbers and the position in the field were all in Russia's favor. Unfortunately, the leaders were poor military men. When the men from the 10th and 11th Divisions arrived from Bessarabia, they were unfortunately led by General P.A. Dannenberg. Menshikov asked his superior Gorkachev to, as Royals puts it, quote, to send the soldiers, but uh, not their commander and had received the dusty response that he could not have the benefits of the former without the disadvantages of the latter. Menshikov remembered that exactly one year earlier, on November 4, 1853, Omar Pasha defeated Dannenberg's forces at Oltenitsa in southern Romania. Why would the Russians put a man in charge of large forces in such a critical battle? Well, Dannenberg was a veteran of the Napoleonic conflict and had enough cachet within the War Department in St. Petersburg to ensure his status. Unfortunately, also for the Russians, Kornilov, one of the most able-minded military men, had just been killed in action. The plan drawn up by Menshikov was the one, had it been adhered to by his generals in the field, would have likely ended up in a Russian victory and would have changed world history. But it was so complex, it would have been almost impossible for the generals and the men in the field to have uh, successfully pulled it off. The Russians prepared for battle by beginning to move into position, starting at around 2 a.m. It had rained the day before and a fog began to form, which was to add to the confusion of missed and incorrect orders that was to be the call of the day. 
The fighting that day was hand-to-hand, with bayonets used as much as rifle fire. As Hamley puts it, quote, On our part, it was a confused and desperate struggle. Colonels of regiments led on small parties and fought like subalterns, captains like privates. Once engaged, every man was his own general. The enemy was in front and must be beaten back. The tidal, the tide of battle ebbed and flowed, not in waves, but in broken, tumultuous billows. At one point, the enemy might be repulsed, while, at a little distance, they were making the most determined rush. To stand on the crest and breathe a while was to put our men no rest. But far more trying than the close combat of infantry, where there were human foes with whom to match and prove strength, skill, and courage, and to call forth the impulses which blind the soldier to death or peril. The Battle of Inkerman was a disaster for the Russians. 10,729 men were either killed, wounded, or captured. The British and French completely lost 610 men killed and 1,610 wounded. The Allied leaders blamed Raglan for not pressing for a more decisive victory, but in reality there was little he could have done given the conditions on the field. For Menshikov, having the Grand Dukes there was not a good thing for him, as they blamed the field marshal for the defeat. They wrote to the Tsar, quote, Staggering though it is to relate, Menshikov had no headquarters at all, just three people who work at those duties in such a fashion that if you want to know something, you are lost to know whom to ask. Menshikov, for his part, blamed the superior arms of the enemy and the arrivals of French reinforcements. Bickering amongst the Russian generals, each blaming the other, did nothing to improve morale. Now, lest you think it was just the Russians who were complaining, no, it was both sides were finger-pointing, and that worsened morale for the Allies, despite their apparent victory. Then came the one constant that you have to talk about with any war in Russia that lasts for a while. And you might have guessed it, winter began to set in. While winter in the Crimea is nothing like the northern reaches of Russia, it was still a problem as the Allies were not prepared for it. They believed that the war would have been over by Christmas, which, as I said before, was a highly optimistic point of view. Creature comforts for the men of the Allied armies would be long in coming. Then, on November 14th, a storm struck the Crimea, and with it the men were to suffer from horrible conditions. And this was no ordinary storm. This was a massive one. As one of the officers of the Highland Brigade put it, quote, all the tents fell in about three minutes, and some the poles broke, and others the pegs drew. As to mine, the wind rushed in at the door and split it right up. So my servant and I spent an hour lying on the wet canvas to keep it compactly down and to prevent the household goods from being blown away. Just at the first destruction of the tents, the air was loaded with all sorts of articles, highland bonnets, shoes, chairs, bits of wood, and all the papers and news were official in the camp. Next time, we're going to cover the aftermath of increment, and, and I'm going to talk a lot about this storm and what happened afterwards. It was just a disaster, especially for the British, and to a lesser degree for the French and the Turks. And we're also going to talk about the intense suffering that was involved when they weren't even fighting.
So while I enjoy, hope you enjoyed today's podcast, I'm going to be posting some pictures of the battles of Balaclava and Inkerman on my blog site in the next few days at www.russianrulershistory.com. While you're there, if you can, donate to the podcast to help cover the expenses. Additionally, don't forget to stop by Facebook and join us at Russian Rulers History. So now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.